Good morning, everybody. Um, as David has said, we've been going through this series of creation for redemption, restoration, tracking the story of the Bible. We've been in the Old Testament. We've seen how God has made all things. We were made in the image of God. We were made to be perfect and good and to be something that brings him pleasure. We've seen how humans fell into disobedience in the Garden of Eden, um, choosing their own path. And the Old Testament follows that out story after story, the Tower of Babel, Joseph's brothers, Noah's Ark, etc. We've seen redemption in the Old Testament with stories like Solomon uh, that Caroline spoke about. And in restoration and the way that God has made all things new um, and brought promises. But the prophets not only call people to humble themselves in the Old Testament, they also spoke of a person who would be coming in the future. And Ed spoke to us last week about this idea of creation in the New Testament, which can seem a little odd, but it points to that idea of Jesus being the incarnation of everything that, that humans should have been. Jesus was always the plan. He was always this central part of creation. And it says in, in Luke 19, verse 10, that he came to seek and save the lost. And that leads us to this idea of fall and how we interact with that in the New Testament. In some ways, it's, you know, it's an arbitrary distinction. The whole story flows through. Um, and we come to this word of sin. And there are many books and theologies and doctrines about sin, and I don't have time <laughs> to go into all of them, and I would be too scared to. Um, and there's lots of very heavy words around it. There are lots of cultural impressions. It's not a word we like to use very much. We often associate it with sort of judgmental sandwich boards or people shouting at someone that the end is nigh, as you can see up there. Um, and it can be difficult to talk about without seeming like we're judging someone else. Um, it's a word that we're a little bit afraid of. There's also a lot of vocabulary around sin. We talk about personal sin and corporate sin and structural sin, the sins of the world and sins of omission and commission and purposeful sin and unintentional sin and habitual and one time. And it can end up as this kind of malaise of, of words that can be quite hard to navigate. So how are we meant to understand this word? I mean, firstly, there's great equality when it comes to sin, which is kind of freeing in some ways. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see that in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, where we see that disobedience brought shame before God, where they run away when God comes into the garden. It brings extra pain in childbirth, women-specific consequence, yay. Patriarchal dominance, men will rule over women. Creation works against humanity instead of working with us as we steward it. And ultimately, death. It says, to dust you will return. We're separated from God. It's kind of a classic diagram that I got shown a lot when I was a teenager. Um, and C.S. Lewis describes this tragedy in the first Narnia book when... Narnia has just come into life, um, and humans have kind of walked into it, and evil has entered into the world. Aslan speaks of the magician and says to the children, but I cannot tell that, so that, the mysteries of life, to this old sinner, and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. 
If I spoke to him, he would only hear growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that might do you good. And we see the sin and consequences in the Old Testament of this separation of a God who passionately reaches out and people don't, don't go with him. They choose their own way. But what's interesting is when we think about sin, we're drawn to sort of other words that don't really appear in the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about morality. It doesn't talk about virtue ethics or sort of being a good person. The whole story is the story of a righteous, good, and faithful God who reaches out to his people and they refuse stubbornly time and time again to return to him and they shut themselves off from his voice. The only person who did not sin, the only person in who we see this righteousness existing in, this you know, perfect morality, if we're going to use kind of human terms, was Jesus. He was not separated from God. Karl Barth, the sort of theologian of the 20th century, one of them, says that we can only understand what sin is in light of who Jesus is. It's only in knowing how good he is and his conquest over sin that we can see ourselves in our true light. He doesn't come because of sin. He was and is to is to come. He's the same and he's unchanging. But in comparison to him, there is sin. That's what it means when we say fall short of the glory of God. When we seek to be gods in his place, as they did at the Tower of Babel, I can build a tower and reach to the heavens and become as powerful. Sin happens. When we seek to rule without being a servant, it's said that Jesus came as a king, but not to be served, but to serve. When we seek control that isn't in a way that we are serving and loving and pouring ourselves out, sin happens. When we take his place as judge and we decide what's right and wrong, for our own lives, or potentially worse for the lives of others, what should be acceptable, sin happens. And when we take his place as savior and we say, I can fix myself, I don't need your help, sin happens. When we don't recognize the image of God in one another and even in ourselves, sin happens. And I'm not going to stand here and go, here are sins and here are not sins. (laughs) I don't think that's my place. I think God shows us in the person of Jesus what it looks like to be sinless. And we can see ourselves in that. But we can respond to sin in different ways. We can respond by saying, yeah, but I hear you. But I, I'm, not, I'm not as bad as, you know, I'm not a serial killer. I'm not, I'm not any of these things that culture sort of says, here are the really bad things. And if you don't do those, you're probably an all right person. And it's, it's a funny thing because it's meant to make us feel better. But what we see in it is this kind of almost the same attitude that the Pharisees had where they stood in the temple and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a tax collector. And when we see them interacting with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And they all have to walk away because they recognize that. You hear people say, yeah, but I'm only human. Humans make mistakes. To be human is to be Christ. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and yet he didn't sin. God made humans not with this design flaw. God made humans to be perfectly his image on earth. It is an aberration away from what it means to be human when we sin. 
when we talk about unintentional sin. I made a mistake, I didn't realize. There's a place for that. And in the Old Testament, there's, there's a difference in the sacrifices that you make. It's quite interesting, I found that recently. In Numbers 15, uh, there's a whole different process that someone goes through if they've kind of sinned accidentally and they realize. But the requirement is still to acknowledge and go, I still did something wrong. I still messed up in this particular way. Sometimes we can go, you know what, I'm just having a really hard time. I was tired, I was stressed. And we're not conflating and saying being in pain or anything, that's, that's not sin in itself. Being hurt is not sinful. But when we use our hurt and our frustration as an excuse to harbor resentment or unforgiveness against one another, that's where we fall into that place of not recognizing Jesus in someone else. Ephesians 4 verse 26 to 27 says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Jesus says, as we forgive others, we will be forgiven. We're judged by him as long as we give up our right to judge other people. He judges us with mercy. He says in Matthew 7 verse 1 to 2, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this. We often, just from my own life, I'll often fall into judgment of someone else in the areas I'm most scared that someone might look at me and be like, is she a bit like this? I don't want people to see me like that. And yet those are the main areas that I can fall into judgment of other people. When we come to communion... This is the place where we lay this stuff down, as we're going to do today. It says in in Matthew 5, when we're talking about making an offering, that if you remember that you have a grievance against your brother, you're meant to go and sort it out before that offering takes place. The offering's meant to bring us back to a place of unity, where we've let go of our grievances against one another. We're not meant to take communion still in that place of hostility towards one another. That's not what it's about. So we can respond in lots of different ways. But Jesus calls us to a response where we take responsibility. It's that kind of mature thing we say to our children. You know, to be mature is to to take responsibility for your actions. If you've made a mistake, you own up to it and you sort it out. And I think we can apply the same when we think about our sin. Jesus' attitude in Matthew 5 is very clear. He says, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There's kind of a, an aggressive, kind of violent response to our sin that he encourages us to have. Does it mean that we work harder? We come up with greater religious principles and we put in plans? No. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, through the actions, through the religions, through the practices, then Christ died for no purpose. And it's followed by that famous, you foolish Galatians passage. But the cross is central to our story. The cross is central to our story. It is prophesied about long ago in Isaiah 53, which we read sometimes at Christmas, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's in light of Jesus's life, the way he did everything and his death, 
that we see our sin in comparison to him. That Jesus' humility destroys our pride. He says he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, even though he was God in every way and he could assert that. He humbled himself to the position of a servant. He frees us from the need to control others and be Lord of our own life. And he reveals the price of being the judge. The judge is the one who has to take the judgment on himself. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. And he takes our place as saviour, Jesus' surrender on the cross, where he is helpless and he's fully abandoned to the Father. It means that salvation can break through. He's, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he's talking about Matthew and he calls that the tax collector, he says to the Pharisees who are judging him, do you need a doctor? Righteous people don't need a doctor. Only sinners need a doctor. Those are the people that I came to. So when we shield ourselves off and we get awkward and we feel the shame that is, is very normal for humans to feel, Adam and Eve did the same thing. We restrict the flow of grace to our lives. We don't have to reinforce this separation between us and God. There's no benefit for us pretending that we don't have stuff going on. It says in Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's no benefit to us pretending. God's not convinced. The quicker we acknowledge, we get this free gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So how do we respond to the cross? There's an active working out of the cross. It's an active process to reconcile all things back to himself. In Romans 10, verse 9 to 11, it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Confession and repentance are active processes. Confession requires us to acknowledge our sin. It requires humility and to speak it out whether that's to ourselves, just to God, or it might be to somebody else. And repentance requires us to turn away from our sin and to change our hearts and our actions. They work together. James 4, verse 7 to 10 says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded be wretched, and, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And it's a, it's, you know, it's a classic James passage. It is challenging. There is a humility there where we can't just go on saying, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. There is a degree to which we have to go and go, you know what? God, I want to see myself as how I truly am. Reveal all of these ways within me. Let me confess them. Let me repent of them. But Tozer brings it forward as well, the theologian Tozer, and he says repentance isn't only sorrow for past sin. It is not just sitting there saying, 
Woe is me. I am so sinful. Sometimes you hear that kind of, I'm, I'm a mere worm. I'm so depraved. God, would you just rescue me? It's not just sorrow for past sin. It's also a determination to do the will of God as he reveals it to us. It's a two-process part. Turning away from the things that separate us and push us away from God and are bringing ourselves back into his purposes. There's a hope in it. We can't guilt ourselves into this process. We can't think our way out of sin like a New Year's resolution or a diet that we want to go into. As we've seen, it's our acknowledgement of who Jesus is and our need for him. And it's God's hand always reaching out to us as a father. It says in Romans 2 verse 4 that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It's not the guilt of someone else or God wagging his finger and saying, you're just really bad. And maybe we've had experiences of church or religion where that, that's been our experience or what we expect. But it says right at the beginning of Romans, the kindness of God leads people to repentance. As we journey towards God, as we journey towards Jesus, which is just discipleship, as we try and we seek to become more like him, we realize where we're truly at. And that leads us to say, God, I don't want this to be part of my life. I don't want this attitude that I have or this reaction that I have that doesn't feel like the fullness of your love in this situation to be part of my life anymore. There is no shame. God's not saying, oh, finally, you've realized I've waited years. God just says to us, come, come. He is kind. He is good. And in the response to that kindness, our human heart can't help but say, I want to I be more like you, Jesus. In the setup of the tabernacle, it's just fascinating. In the ark, you have the law. And it talks about the lid of the ark that covers kind of this source of judgment. It describes it as the mercy seat of God. So there's a very physical practice of mercy over judgment that we see as that verse. God's presence dwells on the mercy seat. That's where he is to be found. Jesus frees us and says, go and sin no more. And it's in that interaction that we get to put our faith and say, God, I don't understand how this works. I don't understand how you are freeing me. I don't understand how you are cleansing me, but I put my faith that the cross is enough. And it says in Romans 5 verse 1, that therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by acknowledging and saying, I believe that this is enough, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're made right with God when we believe. This is great, but we also live in this tension, sort of the now and the not yet. The power of sin over our lives has been broken by the cross forever. It's done. The curse of the Garden of Eden is finished, but we still war against it in our lives. We still feel like we're stuck in the middle of the tension. Romans 7 verse 15 to 20 Paul has this moment, which is really human and obviously many words because it's Paul. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Skipping on, it says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. In other words, I keep doing the stuff I don't want to do, and I don't do the stuff I do want to do. And we live in that place. We can come up with wonderful plans, and God, I'm going to be loving today. And then the reality hits, and we're stuck in this tension. How do we move past that? One is where we talk about this word temptation, which is just simply where we feel drawn to that kind of wrong response that might not feel wrong at the time. When we see Jesus in the desert, we see this example of Psalm 119, where it says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. All Jesus said to Satan when he was being tempted, he just repeated the Bible at him. He had those words of life stored up to say, no, I'm not going to go that way. I know the truth about God. I know the truth of who I am. I don't need to go in that direction. And when we know his truth, we also have the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises us. We're not doing this in our own strength. We do it in the strength of him who went before us. But repentance from sin also looks like ridding the world of injustice. There is structural sin. We mentioned that earlier. Um, People like Martin Luther King spoke about it all the time. And he talks about this idea of man in society. And when you're interacting with society, you can't help but get mixed up in in the evil that is going on. We live in a complex world of sometimes unnecessary, sometimes inconvenient, sometimes just unholy choices. And he says, this is the tragedy of man's predicament, that even on every level of his movement, he's caught in sin and he supports evil. That is the interaction, the togetherness of humanity. And that makes the level of social sin even more tragic. There's a degree to which we kind of can't help it. We are in a sinful world. The kingdom of God has come in the cross, in breaking the power of these things that we get to then walk out, but is still coming. For those people who, who have gone to be with Jesus, they don't have to deal with this anymore. And isn't that a wonderful thing? They're not stuck in this tension. They're made perfect with him. And in the future, when Jesus returns, we will get to live in the fullness of the kingdom. We won't have this battle anymore. We'll be made righteous and perfect with him. But in the meantime, we're called to live in this tension of the now and the not yet and acknowledge the power of the cross and continue to return. Why is it important to do this? Well, just a a side note. All of the great revivals of history were precursored, yes, by times of passionate prayer, but the main prayers that they were praying was ones of corporate repentance, of coming back to God and saying, God, we acknowledge that we have sinned against you, that we are sinning against each other. God, would you free us? The great Wesleyan revival in the 18th century was brought in by this wave of repentance that kept coming and kept coming. And what it led to was people like William Wilberforce going into parliament and trying to, well, succeeding in abolishing slavery because the personal became social, became global in impact. I can't continue this this battle without seeking to get rid of the injustices and evils in the world. 
I think we want to see, see similar things happen today. So we need to keep coming back to the cross. It's not a one-time sinner's prayer where we give our lives to Jesus, although those are important. And if you've never done that, I would really encourage you to do that today. There's never anything better than coming to Jesus and having him take everything off you. It's in a constant life of humility and coming back to God and taking the time to acknowledge where we've gone wrong and speak it out in confession, but also in coming back and, and reforming and going back into his wills and giving it to him. And this sits at a, you know, it's a slightly awkward place. We're kind of on Friday at the moment where we're nailing things to the cross. We know that restoration and redemption is coming. We know that part of the story. But at the moment, we're sitting in that tension of acknowledging where we're at with God. There's no shame. There's no condemnation. It's the kindness of God that calls us to repentance. So I'd like, you, I'd like to invite you to do two things this morning. We're going to stand and we're going to pray together in a minute. But what I'd like you to do afterwards, which might, might feel a bit weird, but I would, I would love it if, if you would join with me in this. As we just acknowledge, I'd like you to come forward. And we have this cross here. And for those of you who might be worried about the Church of England's money, this isn't the cross that's usually here. I made it, so you can, it's mine. You can do what you want to it, really. Um, and I'd like you to take a piece of red paper. And that can be whatever. That can just be you saying, God, this is my whole life. I want to live in a rhythm of confession and repentance to you. Or it might be something really specific, and no one has to know what it is. It's between you and God. But I love you just to come and take that red paper. And take a pack. (coughs) And just nail it to the cross. You can do that in your own time. We're going to be doing some worship. You can take all the time you want over this, really. Do it during communion. The cross will stay up here. But I love you if you feel drawn to do that this morning. For us to come and to recommit ourselves and just acknowledge that we're not as we want to be. And that's okay. Because the cross has raw power to set us free. So we'll do that in a minute as we worship. But I'd like you to stand with me now. We're going to say a prayer together. Thanks, David. This brings together many different Bible passages of repentance. So let's pray together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Though our sins are like scarlet, make them as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, may they become like wool. Create in me a clean heart, O God, And renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And lead me 
in the way everlasting. Amen. So the band are going to come up.